Yeah, it's already live. Well, good morning, or good evening, church. We're going to go ahead and begin our service this evening. Um, Kenny won't be here this evening because uh, Amy's out sick right now uh, with COVID, and he's just taking precaution and staying at home. Uh, that way, it doesn't spread ev- anymore. Um, also, if you prayed for me while I was out sick, I do thank you guys for that. Um, I'm still feeling a little rough. I'm still a little tired and have some congestion, as you guys can tell. And I also have a lingering cough, and I do ask that you guys just pre- please pray for me as I uh, continue to recover. Uh, this evening, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The church is called to act and to live a certain lifestyle that re- represents her head, which is Christ. And what Paul is doing here in Titus is, as we're moving along, if you remember, that Paul writes Titus and Timothy about the same time. Second uh, Timothy, his uh, last writing, happens about A.D. 64, and shortly afterwards he's um, executed. He becomes a martyr for the cause of Christ. Uh, and, and in all three of these epistles, he's writing to um, his sons in the faith to train them up to take care of the church after he's gone. Uh, if, you, if you would recall, when we study the Gospels, it, the primary focus is on Christ. By the time you get to the Acts, though Christ is still the center and the head of the church, the focus is now sifting to church and church life. Why? Because now the church is what is operating on behalf of God. And now we're seeing another transition with these works of Paul in that it is no longer now on the shoulders of the apostles, but as the apostles are dying and fading away, the ministry and the work of Christ is now placed upon the elders, the pastors of the churches, to lead the church forward. In, f- in studying of this passage, I actually wrote this sermon um, several months ago for one of my classes, and as I went through this, what we were looking at tonight is the expectations of the church, and in this text, we'll see that there are three different expectations. In fact, again, as I was studying this passage, what came to my mind was when I sanded and refinished floors, and my dad would tell you that there are a lot of expectations that go upon the client in sanding the floors. In fact, multiple times when we'd start a job, we'd tell the client, this is our floor. You are not allowed on this floor until we tell you. Well, there were many times that they decided that their thoughts were a lot higher than what the professionals was, and in fact, one time I remember we finished a floor, and I did a lot of the sanding. Dad came around and did the finishing after I finished the sanding, and he started putting the stain on it, and there were footprints. And my dad went and asked the client, like, what's going on? And the guy's like, well, I, I know you said that we wasn't allowed to stand on the floor, but we were sitting here watching television last night, and my wife said, man, I could really do from some popcorn right now. And I was like, that sounds like a great idea. So he just walked on in there, and there were, we had to resand the floor. So needless to say, part of being a floor finisher was also constantly telling the clients what their expectation was, why we worked in their house. 
But let us begin reading the text this evening from Titus chapter 3. And we'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, <coughs> so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for the person who stirs up division after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. As we look at this, the first expectation of the church is that the church lives a life that honors God. And notice with me in verses 1 through 3, Paul writes to Timothy, remind them. And we could pause there and just think for one moment, who is this them that Paul is talking to and this them are those who are in Crete? Uh, to give you a little background of Titus, Titus was sent to the island of Crete. Uh, Timothy was sent to a single city to correct the church and to build the church and to establish elders, but Titus had a much larger area. He had a whole island he had to take care of. And based on reading the text, we can say that there were quite a lot of issues within the Cretan church. In fact, if we was to turn all the way back to chapter 1, we would see that Paul says that one of their own prophets says something that's very wise and is true about Cretans, and that is they are always liars. And this is spoken in, con in comparison to the church leaders at this time. However, Titus' job was not just to look at the church leaders, but he was also to direct his focus to the church. Again, going through this entire book, if we would had time, we'd see that chapter 2 largely focuses on the church. This is what is expected of a healthy, live church, and that is to be morally good before God, to be holy, to be sanctified. And Paul is telling Titus to remind them. And reminders are a good thing. Paul uses it multiple times. In fact, one of the very um, ones that comes to my mind whenever I think of reminders in terms of Christian life is when Peter uses the term, I bring this up for your remembrance. I bring this up so you can remember. And in 1 Peter, he's saying, I'm not writing all these great doctrinal truths about who Christ is, what he has done for you, because you have no idea who he is. 
but I'm writing it because it's good to be reminded of these things. Church, it is good for us to be reminded of who Christ is. It is good for us to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. It is good to be reminded of the expectation now that is on our lives because of who Christ is. We are called to live a separate lifestyle from the world. Notice the language Paul uses here. Remind them to be submissive to rulers. Now this is a a hard thing to swallow. This is a very large pill for us to swallow. To be submissive to rulers. But we must remember where do rulers come from? Yes, we can say we elected our governors, our Senate leaders, our Congress, or even the president. But at the end of the day, rulers are only in power because of the will of God. Uh, if you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 13, and, I, and I'll show you based on the Bible where this comes from. In Romans, Paul deals a lot with doctrine, but in this section we're looking at in Romans, Paul is now sifting his focus to application, what it means to live out these great doctrinal truths. And in Romans chapter 13, I want you guys to hear this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? Why, Paul? Why am I to be subjected to the governing authorities? Well, listen to what Paul says. For there is no authority except from God. There is no other authority except that which comes from God. Our governor, Governor DeWine, has no true authority except that his authority comes from God. Even Biden has no such authority except that God has given him that authority. And we can even go as far as to say that even Putin, the Russian dictator, has no authority except that which comes from God. Why? Because God allowed it to happen. And we could discuss why it's happening, but at the end of the day, we must understand that God is sovereign over all things. He's not just sovereign over just the church. He's sovereign over the entire creation. Now, does this mean that Putin's right or any other dictator like Hitler or any other dictator that has ever lived is right? No. They will stand at judgment for their own sins. But what it means is that God allowed them to be an authority, and they cannot supersede the authority of God. And if we continue in Romans chapter 13, I want you to notice in verse 2 what Paul says. (coughs) Therefore, whoever resists, Authority. Resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good (coughs) conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you must also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very things. If you notice, constantly Paul is going back that the authorities are servants of God, servants of God, ministers on God's behalf. This doesn't mean they're saved, but what it means is God is using them for his own purpose. And at the time Paul is writing Romans, do you know who's on the throne in Rome? Nero. A, a great and tragic emperor to the church. Uh, just to give you a little a glimpse of what Nero would do, he would take Christian families... He would starve lions and go to the Colosseum. He would wrap the children up and dress them like lambs while the parents were strapped to a stake. And they would have to sit there and watch as their children were eaten alive by lions. And then after that, they lit the stakes and they were burned to death. He would have parties in his garden at nighttime and obviously, being nighttime, you have to see what you're doing. So instead of having torches, he had human torches. He would, again, roll Christian believers in pitch, set them on a stake, and light them. And as they screamed in agony, him and his, entrepreneur, uh, his posse would party. And Paul is saying here, be subjected to your rulers. Be kind to your rulers. Pray for your rulers. And it's not just in Romans. He tells Timothy that. It's throughout the Bible. Why? Because again, when we are obedient to the rulers, as long as it does not go against the word of God, that is the dividing line. When it goes against, directly against what God has said in his word, that is when we say, we will not bow the knee. But if it does not, we are to be obedient to them. We, as believers, must keep this in mind that when we are expected to live a life that honors God, that life is also to be submissive to rulers and authorities. If we continue in verse 1, to be ready for every good work. Now let's just take a moment and notice what Paul is not saying. Paul's not telling Titus, Titus, form a committee in the churches of Crete and just ponder if, if what kind of humanitarian acts we should do. What should the church do that's good? Don't sit there behind your podium and just ponder it, but no, to be ready, to be ready to do it. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he also tells Timothy to be ready. And what does he tell Timothy to be ready in? to be ready in season and out of season to preach the gospel. This is the very same language here, to be ready. Don't be slack. Don't hesitate to be ready to do what is good. In other words, don't hesitate to be a holy Christian. Don't hesitate to be somebody who does what is right according to God. We are to be the church. Remember, 
The church is to act and to live according to represent her head, Jesus Christ. This is our expectation, to live that which represents our Savior. Uh, turn back with me in Titus, and I'll, I'll just want us to look at chapter 2 because what we're looking at is at the end of the book, and Paul is just summarizing everything he's saying. But in chapter 2, verses 11, I want us to see precisely, or 1 verses to 5, my bad, to see what Paul is saying about being ready for good works. And he's speaking to Titus again, and listen. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent, <coughs> are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husband and children. They be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Serve yourselves in all respects to be a good model of good works. And in your teaching, sow integrity, dignity. This whole epistle from chapter 2 onward is about how the church is to live in a healthy lifestyle. The church is not to be anemic and not suppose we might do a good work, to suppose we might be obedient, but no, the church is, to, is expected to live a lifestyle that honors God. And a lifestyle that honors God is a lifestyle that rejects sin. It is a lifestyle that runs to Christ and says, you are my Lord, you are my Savior, I live for you. Our lifestyle should reflect that a change has occurred. If we were to look at James, and I got it here on my notes, so I'll just read it off to you. But in James chapter 2.18, James writes, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You see, a saving faith is a faith that works. A faith that reveals Christ is in us is one that will reveal Christ to the world through us. If we are saying we are saved, but we have no love for the outside world, we are producing ourselves to be liars. And how can we say this? Because John tells us that. That if anybody does not love his brother, but claims to love Christ, he is a liar. But I want us to continue because this is not the only expectation of the church. Uh, continue with me as we look in verses 4 through 8, that the second expectation of the church is one that lives humbly in the grace of God. <coughs> Again, Paul writing, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Christ became incarnate, when Christ stepped out of heaven and became man, salvation appeared to us. Does that mean everybody before Christ was not saved? No. What it means is now everything is fulfilled within the person of Christ. And in the person of Christ, redemption is finally paid in full. 
we, we have that phrase, to telestai, it is finished. It is a, it's a statement saying it is paid in full. It is complete. There is no more payment to be needed. And this is what's happening here. When the grace of our God, our Savior, appeared, salvation appeared to us. But notice, we didn't do anything for our salvation. Notice in verse 5, who saved us? Who saved us? He does Paul say here, Titus, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Does he say, Titus, go to church and live a good life? No. He says, the kindness of God in our Savior who sacrificed himself for us, that is how he saved us. He saved us. And it's not because of works done by righteousness but according to his own mercy. We are to live humbly before God. We must remember that God saved us, not because we were redeemable already, but he redeemed us because he was merciful to us. Uh, We can easily look at Paul's life as a great example for this. If If you recall... What does Paul say about himself? I am the chief of all sinners. If you think you're a sinner, well, I'll tell you, there has never been a greater sinner than I. That's what Paul said. If you think you've done so bad, let me tell you, I went and killed the church. And Christ still saved me. Christ is still a savior to this day. Christ is still merciful to sinners this very day. We don't have to clean up our lives. We don't have to be baptized. We don't have to tithe. We don't have to speak in tongues. No, we throw ourselves at the mercy of God and cry out, save us. We be like that tax collector. Have mercy on me. God is a merciful God. But as we look at here, we must understand that the expectation of the church is not to go around and boast, oh, God saved me. Oh, look how great of a Savior my God is because he saved me. No, it is a humbleness. We look at God and we worship him because he saved us. We are stirred to good works because of the mercy set on us. We should remember that our service does not elevate us above other believers. Paul just spent a long time proclaiming to Titus what the church is to do, how the church is to act. Now, Paul is also reminding Titus, your actions don't make you more saved. Your salvation only comes because God is merciful. Uh, one writes this concerning humility. The central thought is to be free from pride. A, a humble heart is one that does not look at himself and says, and puffs himself up. What does Proverbs say about pride? Pride comes what? Before the fall. A humble heart is a heart of a Christian. 
And a humble life is, the corner, is a cornerstone, not the cornerstone, but is a cornerstone teaching of the church. Christ tells his disciples this, if anyone desires to follow after me, what must he do? He must deny himself daily. The Christian life is one that walks in denial of self. And a humble life is one that glorifies God. And I'll be honest, church, especially growing up in America where we are vast producers of a lot of pleasures and we are very prideful in what we do and what we produce, it is hard to have a humble life. It's hard for me to say, this, lay myself at the mercies of God and rely on him. But if we are to continue to grow towards Christ, that is the very thing we must do. We must cast everything we have and cast it upon Christ, and then we throw ourselves on top of that. Remember, he is a merciful God. <coughs> Continuing with, he saved us, not according because of work done in us because of righteousness, but according to his own mercy and by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And get this, whom he poured out. Again, we didn't grab the Holy Spirit and put him inside ourselves. No, God put the Holy Spirit in us. God himself put himself in us. And notice, notice the phrase there in, in verse 6. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us, what? Richly, in abundance. We don't have just a, a little tiny itty bitty part of God in us. No, we have the full amount of God in us. In Ephesians, Paul even brings us out that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit awaiting our redemption of our bodies. Verse 7, so <coughs> that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Again, we see it again. Devote yourself to good works. So uh, we see that the first expectation is to live a life that honors God. The second one is to live a life that is humble in the grace of God. And, and now this third expectation of the church is the expectation that the church will avoid false teachings. Paul is, again, in this epistle, turning Titus to mark and avoid those who come in the church and bring destructive teaching. In, in almost all of Paul's pastoral epistles, uh, the only one we could probably say that is not marked, but it's more for Timothy and for him to understand that he is to finish the race well, and that would be Second Timothy. But First Timothy and Titus is all about building more upon the foundation that was laid. Here in Titus, we see that. And notice with me verses 9 through 11, how the church is expected to avoid false teachings. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, 
dissensions and quarrels <coughs> about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and worthless. In one verse there, we see that Titus, his job was to remind the people to do good. But he's also to help the church to know what false teaching is. At this time, there are a few heresies that were starting to bubble up. And one of them is the one Paul is speaking here, which is Judaism. Uh, Today, we could probably call this legalism in our churches. What it is is where it's more focused on, in a sense, outward doing. Uh, These people were teaching. It's good enough that you believe in Christ However, that, that's not fully, that does not fully save you. To be fully saved, you have to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. You have to keep all these, ex, all these laws that no one can keep, and only then can you possibly be saved. <coughs> Essentially, what was going on was these people were kind of like Muslims today. They viewed Christ in high regard, but they did not view him rightly. They viewed him as a good teacher, as somebody worthy to follow some of his sayings, but he is not the Savior. And as believers in Christ, as Christians, that is our only hope. Uh, The other heresy that was beginning to formulate in this time was what we call Gnosticism. And what this is, is that these people believe they had this secret understanding that God revealed to them. <coughs> um, and, and Paul isn't really dealing with this here because one of their main teaching was is that flesh is evil. That matter is evil. So they would argue that Jesus was only a spirit. He was not, he did not come into the flesh. But John rebukes that in 1 John. And how do we know this? Because First John, in, in his writing, John says, we felt him. We saw him. We heard him. We was with him. All these things correlate that God didn't come incarnate. And church, I'll be honest, the church will always, it may not creep in here so rapidly, but I will tell you, the church as a whole, as a collective, the universal church will likely always face some type of deception coming in from non-believers or imposters, we could say. But that is not to discourage us, but rather that is for us to understand we need to train our minds to recognize when false teaching comes. And we do this by reading the Word of God and reading it correctly. We are not to read this with imposing our own thoughts on God's Word, but we are to take God's Word and let it change our lives, not change the Word of God. Paul's instruction to Titus is clear. Warn those who fail to meet the expectation of a pastor if they don't listen warn them another time and if they still do not listen have nothing to do with them if you remember what Jesus said when he's talking about church discipline 
He said, if you have fault with your brother, go before them. If he doesn't repent, bring two witnesses with you. If he still doesn't repent, then bring it before the church. Paul's a little more stricter here. But the key difference is, is when Jesus was speaking, Jesus was speaking between a brother in Christ who sinned, and Paul is speaking about somebody who's coming in and is, in effect, corroding the foundation of the church. It is a very serious matter when it comes to dealing with false teaching. And we should not waste our time dealing with it either. In other words, if it's not here in Sonny Hills Baptist Church, we should not focus our attention on calling it out. Why? And again, we must remember, Paul is talking to Titus, who is a church leader. Titus's job was the island of Crete. Titus is not to worry about what's going on in the church in Jerusalem or in the church in Rome or in the churches of Galatia. No, Titus's concern was solely on the churches in Crete. And if, we are lead, if those of us who are leaders in the church, we should do wise to understand our primary focus is not to correct the false teaching outside of here, but to guard the sheep that are within here, the congregation, and to have them know what false teaching is so that they themselves can weed out that wolf. Titus was to remind the church of what the expectations of it was, what is expected of the church to grow, what is expected of the church to flourish, to be alive, and we should constantly remind ourselves of those expectations. Why? Because the church is called to act and to live according to the one who redeemed her. We are to be representations of our Savior. To review quickly, the three expectations are that the first expectation of the church is to live a life that honors God. The second expectation of the church is to live a life that is humble before God. And this last expectation of the church is that the church is to avoid foolish and false teaching. Dwight D. Eisenhower is reported to have said, in order to be a leader, a man must have followers. And to have followers, a man must have their confidence. Hence, the supreme quality of a leader is unquestionable integrity. Without it, no will success is possible, no matter whether it is on a section gang, on a football field, in an army, or in an office, if a man's associates find him guilty of phoniness. If they find he lacks forthright integrity, he will fail. His teachings and actions must square <coughs> with each other. The first great need, therefore, is integrity and high purpose. Church, we are to live a life of integrity. And in order to do that, we must live out these expectations laid out by Paul here in Titus. And I would 
encourage you guys to think on the, those expectations. The expectation of living a life that honors God. The expectation of living a life that is humble before God. And an expectation that does not subject itself to false teaching. And I challenge you guys as we close, are you living to those expectations today? Let us bow in prayer. Our